Bible, raise your hands. We're in Colossians chapter 3. We're in a series on Colossians. And uh, if you need a Bible or iPhone or something, can't help you with the iPhone. But um, this is Pete Scazzaro. I have a beard for the summer. So we'll see how long it lasts, what makes it through the summer. But it is me. Good to see you. So I'm actually, today's message is really part one of two. And next week I'll actually do the second part. But I'm going to call it uh, listening to the small screen. From Colossians 3, 9 to 12. And I'd like to actually begin with the same image uh, and metaphor that I used a few weeks ago on a chapter 2 message. Because it really is a great way of understanding Paul's letters. Especially this letter to Colossians. If you remember the story, it, 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 it really took place in the 2004 Ukrainian election. Uh, when the reformer candidate, Viktor Yashchenko, that's him there, uh, handsome before he got poisoned, uh, but they, he, he was challenging the Russian-backed government, which was quite corrupt, and uh, he was running against them, and the people all loved him. And so the poll showed that by far he was going to win the election. There was no, no question about it. But on the day of the election, uh, they, they intimidated voters, they distorted the ballots, and he, they, they basically got on state television, and they, the state television ran the news. They run the news. And so they simply declared, ladies and gentlemen, we announced that the challenger, Viktor Yashchenko, has been decisively defeated. That was it. But the woman on the, on the small screen to your right is the translator for those who are deaf. And uh, so she's always there at the news. And so she, realizing what's going on, here's what she says. She translates it this way. She says, I am addressing all the deaf citizens of the Ukraine. Don't believe what they say. They are lying. And I am ashamed to translate these lies. Yashchenko is our president. Very bold. But no one in the studio understood sign language. So they didn't know what was happening. But all those who were deaf did. And they start texting all their friends. What she says, that, they, that, that, that he got robbed of the election. And so what happened very quickly, this thing spread like wildfire throughout Kiev and, and Ukraine, and boom, began what's now famously known as the Orange Revolution. And over a million people flooded the streets. Next 17 days, they barricaded government offices, etc. And so the, the uh, Russian-backed government had to give elect, offer elections again. And uh, they did, and Viktor Yushchenko won. It's a great story. But what I love about it is the contrast uh, of what's the big screen message coming out and the little screen. Because the little screen, the small screen, is, is the truth. And she had guts, didn't she? I mean, to speak. And, and actually, that's what Paul is doing. He is the little screen speaking. The Colossians have bought into the big screen. And Paul's saying, they're lies. And he is a small screen speaking. In fact, we are called to be like that woman in the culture. That we are wise enough and discerning enough that we can distinguish the two. And we are helping each other live in that little screen. Not just listen to it, but, but listen to it. Now again, we don't control the big screen. That's coming from a, so many forces, right? It's coming from media. It's coming from families. It's coming from universities. Coming from professors, experts, the rich and famous. It's coming in all directions. And, um, you know, everything appears on, everything depends on fame and money and appearance and all that. But... Jesus comes and says, they're lying. Don't believe it. And he comes with truth. I love you. I will never leave you. And do not fear. Your life is like a vapor. A thousand years is like a day. 
The last will be first. The humble will be exalted. Don't believe that big screen stuff. And so uh, Colossians, they got wrapped up in the big screen. And what happened was, in, in their religiousness, it just became a religious big screen message. And so now they're jockeying for power. Who's better than who? And they're, they're, now they're, they're very concerned about rules and regulation. And who's got the most knowledge and wisdom about God? And who knows the Bible better? And it's really like the big screen messages. But now it's wrapped in religion. And Paul sees how destructive that is. And he begins to speak against it. And he writes this book of Colossians. And uh, so what I want to do, I'm gonna, we're going to read... Uh, Colossians 3, 9 to 14, and, and next week it'll be 15 to 17. And, and he's going to talk to them about lies, and that's really the great theme. Do not lie to each other. That is like the topic sentence, because he knows they're lying. They're lying to each other, but they're not, they're not even aware of it, just like many of us are not aware of it. So here's what he says. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off the old, your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of the creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, here's the theme of what he's saying. Don't be false. Now, he's not talking about lying so much in, you know, I lied about what grade I got in my test, or I I lied on my income tax, or I lied the reason I was late for the meeting. Uh, He's not talking about that as much as what he's saying in the original language is, don't be false to one another. No, be real. Be who you are and don't project something that is a lie. Because if any place in the world is supposed to not be false, it's in this room. It's in the new family of Jesus, the church of living God. We, we are supposed to live in the small screen. And then we bring it out to the world, but we live it here. And the last place we want to be is pretentious in this room. So he goes, don't be false to each other. Because you've taken off that. You're supposed to have taken this off. You died with Christ and you've risen again. And so, and so Paul understands that slowly, you'll notice in the verse it says, you know, slowly you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being transformed. So there's a slow movement understood here that we are to basically being shedding the false self, the pretend self, and learning to live in the new. Now, the whole first three chapters of Colossians, and I want to encourage you to, to read Colossians in different versions uh, on your own. I've been doing it for the last couple of months, just not almost, almost like every day, just reading through the whole four chapters. And it's incredible when you read a, a little book like that over and over again in different translations, you see so many things you never saw before. And Paul's talking about the fact that you don't understand what's happened to you in Christ. That, that, that Christ, the image of the invisible God, he made all things. All things were made by him and for him. And that he died for you, he died for your sins, he rose again from the dead, he sits at the right hand of the Father, he's rescued you from darkness, he's brought you into light, he's taken you out of falsehood, he's brought you into truth, he's taken you from slavery, he's brought you into freedom, you've been raised with Christ, what are you doing living lies? What are you doing living falsehood? What are you doing living that old stuff? Because you're in the new. And he invites them to surrender themselves on a level to a whole new life of being transformed by the love of God and to live into their true selves. And uh, he says, 
See, for Paul, he understands that every one of us in this room, we have what was called in the, 16, in the 1500s, we have sealed orders from God. I love the term. It comes from Ignatius. And uh, in other words, God made you, and he has something for you to become and to do in life. And the term sealed orders, in ancient times, they would have you know, a, a, an envelope. A captain of a ship would get an envelope as they would go on a mission, and he would open it once he got on the ship, and it would explain to him what his mission and destination was. In the same way, because you're loved by God, God's got some sealed orders for your life. He's got something for you to go, where to go and what to do and who to become. And out of, and out of the only way you're going to be able to live that is if you begin to shed what Scripture calls the old life or the pretend self or the false self, which we all have that comes from a, a variety of, of, of sources. The, so, so think of that pretend self. You'll notice it's, it's even actually it's quite big and encapsulates this. And that, that is that when you find your love and worth in other things outside of Christ. In other words, you're, you're looking externally because of the way you were raised for a value system that is a lie. So let me give you an example of what this looks like, um, whether it's relationships or approval or success. And this really applies to parents, especially. It goes like this. You have a first child. You say, I want my child to get into the best kindergarten so that they can get into the best elementary school. And I want them in the best elementary school so they can get into the best middle school. And I want them in the best middle school so they can get into the best high school. And I want them to get in the best high school so they can get to the best college. And I want them to get into the best college so they can get in the best graduate school. And I want them in the best graduate school so they can get a lot of money, make a lot of money, and get a lot of toys. And I want them to have a lot of money so that they can go to the best grave. But the entire parenting of that child has been out of a pretend self. Because it's not come from a deep place of having been loved and rescued by God. And God has got a unique sealed order for that child. As well as for your own life. And you're not looking for your value and worth that your kid has made you proud. That your kid has lived out what you want for your life. You're not looking for your worth and value in your accomplishments. Or in how people perceive you. And you see, we, these messages come out of our families that are very deep. First service, you know, a young lady came to me and said, I realized a few weeks ago, she said, my whole life has been shaped by this script given to me by my family, which was that I'm a loser. Because I haven't performed like they had hoped in life. And she started reiterating everything from some relationships and job and education and that, and that she was a disappointment. To them, and she goes, That drives my life and making decisions, etc. It was quite powerful. And so, we have families going back for generations that it's like film in our ears and in our brains about ourselves and what we're supposed to be like. And then we've got a culture that feeds us messages. So, you better be smart, you know, you have worth and value if you're, if you're beautiful. If you're a professional, if you're cool, if you're hip, if you're from New Jersey, if you're African-American or Italian or, I, I, it's so funny, you know, or, or West Indian or European or from Manhattan or some people say, I'm from the Bronx. You don't have the Queens. I'm from the Bronx, okay? That's funny. I know one guy, there are people in prison they, are, they, they find their identity and worth in the fact that they're in prison. 
yeah, man, I'm on death row. I'm like, really? Really? I get letters from these folks, you know? And, or folks are proud. They've been in federal prison. I'm from the hood, you know? And we drop names of who we know. You know, I knew Bill Clinton's great, Bill Clinton's great, great uncle once, you know, really. But I have to put you down so I can find an identity. And what happens when we start finding our identity in the wrong things as a foundation of who we are, uh, we become different people. And we're not really ourselves. We, uh, the true self of who you are in Christ, who is uniquely made you to be, your sealed orders are buried. Buried alive, but they're buried. And so coming to Christ is to get free from that. There's a book that was written uh, last year. It was one of my summer readings, a fantastic book I recommend it. It's called, you know, Quiet, and it's the power of introverts in our world, which is dominated by extroverts. And they say one-third of the population is introverts, okay? And our basic argument is that a lot of introverts have to fake being extroverts to survive, and she basically is liberating the introverts and saying, no, you have a value and you bring a gift and you don't have to become like an extrovert. So she starts quoting some social historians and, and she, she notes how in the 1900s there was, a, there was a dramatic shift from a culture of personality, I'm sorry, to, from a culture of character where we were concerned about things like your, your, your dignity and your, your integrity and your discipline and it became a culture of personality where what was, what was key was, were you bold? Were you extroverted? And the big focus was on how, how other people perceive you. And how in American culture in the early 1900s, and it's only grown since then, everything changed. Who we admire? Extroverted people. How we, how we act at job interviews. What we look for in an employee. How we date. How we raise our children. And basically, point, she sums it like this. She quotes this, this historian, Warren Sussman, who says this. The social role demanded of all in the new culture of personality was that of a performer. Every American was to become a performance self. You can be with a group of people. Everybody's performing. And you realize no one's getting close to anybody. Because everyone's got kind of their walls up. It's quite interesting. When, when it, and so what's happening is when a church does that, it's really dangerous. And the problem with Colossians is they are living a false self. Pretend. They, they've not allowed the gospel to get in there deeply. And so they're like, oh, I keep Sabbath. Do you? You know? You know, I, I have visions and revelations of God. Do you? And so, do you understand when, when, when and, and they have certain rules and who they're following. When you get people living out of a wrong center, out of a false self, and then you put Christianity on it, I'm telling you, it's a mess. You want to run for these people. Run. And Paul realizes this is going to destroy this church and their witness. Why? Because they're in the large screen. Only now with a religious veneer. And so let me give you a little, a little assessment test. Are you living... How, how, no, better said is, think of a continuum of 1 to 10 about how much is your life dominated by the false self. So I got a little quiz for you, you know. And, and you just check off the ones that apply to you. Uh, look, we're all on a journey, so none of us are 100% free from all this. This is, this is putting off the old and putting on the new. So, one, answer these questions, yes or no. I'm reluctant to admit my weaknesses and flaws to others. Two, I look for the approval of others more than I should. Three, I am highly offendable and defensive when people criticize me or critique me. Four, 
I often become harsh and impatient when things are moving too slowly and my expectations are not met. I know, just, you know I see some of you laughing. I, know I, I had a couple of people come to me and said, I was 10 for 10, Pastor Pete. I, I hit them all. <laughs> Five, I say yes when I would rather say no. I beat myself up when I make mistakes. Seven, I have difficulty speaking up when I disagree or prefer something different. Eight, I have a hard time forgiving others. Nine, my fears often cause me to play it safe just in case. And finally, number 10, my body is more often in a state of tension and stress than relaxed. One of the ways you know you're in your sealed orders from God and living from an anchored, grounded place is you're actually your body, like in places like work and in relationships, is actually relaxed. Some of us live in tension all the time in our bodies. We're stressed because we're living a life that's not congruent with our inner life. This past week, I was in meetings um, with around emotionally healthy spirituality. And it was three of us. It was a day and a half of meetings. And at one point, it got very intense as we were talking about you know, where we're going in the future. And there's all these opportunities, all these expectations and demands. And I, and, I, and I was feeling a bit of pressure to move along, you know. And as we were planning, I realized my body got so tense. And I could feel the stress inside of me. And I knew somewhere something was wrong. But I was feeling great pressure to be a certain kind of leader. Great pressure from a lot of forces, to be honest. And then I had my own internal forces of, I don't want to be a loser in this either, you know? And so we started talking about going down roads that actually, for some reason, they looked great, but they were making me feel depressed. I didn't know what, was, I didn't know what to do at that point. Um, so I just kind of said, I just like, we did the meeting, you know, and I just said, let's just, I, I don't know. I, I just, I don't want to, I don't even think we, I can't even talk about this anymore. <laughs> I just need some space. And, um, and so I, I actually have let the thing sit and I'm going to pick it up, you know, this week in terms of, I know I need some time with God. I need some silence. I need some margin. I need some space to ponder, but I know that the road we were going down would have, was, was not mine. It wasn't how God made Scazzaro. And even though if I was counseling somebody else, I'd say, that's what you should do. I realized for me, it was down a false self road. So I, again, I haven't sorted it all out, but I want you to know, even just listening to my body was tremendous in that day. And it got me at least to pause. And so, um, you know, here's, the, here's what Paul does. He, he basically, he knows that he's got to get them re-anchored in Christ. And so in verse 12, he says, Now therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now he just, he, then he goes on and tells them what to do, but he, he wants to remind them of basically their true ground of their identity. And he mentions three things. He goes, first of all, you're chosen before the foundations of the earth. You're actually, you're very special. You were set apart. That's the word for holy. It means, holy means that you were set apart. Like, like God had your name. He saw you, and he set you apart for a very unique, special purpose in life. That's the word holy means. And then he says, you're, you're deep, dearly loved. In the original languages, you are deeply loved. In fact, your love with a love so deep 
that 100,000 years from now, when you see him face to face, you will not fully grasp it. It's that profound. And so he's saying, to, to become a genuine human being, to be able to see clearly and understand the issues behind the big screen about who you are, it, it, it means you're going to have to get back to this grounding of simplicity of your life is immersed in this love of God. That your identity of who you are is the fact that you are deeply loved, you're chosen, you're set apart, and so that love enfolds you, and you don't need to go find it from somebody else. Now, it's great you've got a career, it's great you're trying to do things in life, that's all good. But it doesn't drive you in a way that if I don't get this, I'll die. Because your grounding is in the love of God for you. It's deeper, so you're free from what people think. You're free from having to always succeed. You're free from having to be perfect. And uh, this is the ultimate ground of your identity. That's why Paul's in prison when he writes this. He's in Rome. He's fine. Things, are, you know, things don't look good externally, but he is rejoicing. He is thankful. He is in an anchor place because he knows he's got this deep sense of identity that's different than the big screen that he's loved. And so what happens is relationships are different as a result. You know, he says, you know, do not lie to each other. Don't be false to each other. And then he says, you know, here there's no Gentile or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, when we get free in our own identity, we start seeing people differently. When we live out of a false self, out of this pretend, you basically have to always see distinctions. How you're, you're always jockeying for how you're different, better or worse than other people. And so he takes the big, you know, the big, rate, the big distinctions of ancient times First is race, Jew, Gentile. You know, we're divided by race. Then we got circumcised or uncircumcised. That's religion. Then you've got barbarian, Scythian. Those are like, there's barbarians and there's like God's people. Us and them. In fact, the Scythians were considered the most uncivilized of the uncivilized. Think of the person that you hate the most. That's it. The Scythian. Who doesn't hate the Scythians, all right? It's actually southern Russia from today. Then you've got slaves or free. You've got social, economic distinctions. I'm rich or poor. I'm educated. You're not, you know? And so all these distinctions that Paul says, you know, because listen to me and we can, we can add to these distinctions, age, old, young, male, female, Republican, Democrat. Don't go there. You know, in our context here, oh, you came to America a day ago, a week, last week. And we've got some folks coming last week, last month, or your family came over in the Mayflower, you know, in the 1700s. Paul says, it doesn't matter. Because Christ is all in all. Because all. we all come broken and vulnerable before God. All of us. And we stand at the foot of the cross on equal footing. Christ is all and, and, and is in all. And that there's nobody here superior or inferior. We appreciate the differences between us. But there's actually there's this Christ is all. To live as Christ, as die as gain. And I've died to everything else. So, so Paul makes this connection between your relationship with God and, and people. You know how you say, I love Jesus. I think Jesus is great. I can't stand people, especially Christians, but I love God. Paul says you cannot make that separation. They're all connected. And so for, uh, it's a great phrase by Dan Siegel, a neuroscientist. He says, we are not a me, but a me, we. Uh, we are not a me, but a me, we. What that means is that I'm a person, I'm an individual, but I can't understand your, your, my, myself is shaped in relationships. That it's, it, you're, you're a me, we. And so you'll notice in the Bible, it's always talking about, you know, love God, then it immediately goes to people. Because they're so intricately connected. The way you know your level of relation with God 
is the way you're relating to your most difficult people around you and the highest stress, the depth of it. Do you have a true self in Christ that you're walking out? The way you're going to find that out is in relationships. That's where it all comes out. And so Paul then he invites us to this loving union with Jesus. Chosen to, we're living in this relationship of basking in the love of Jesus, of union and communion and abiding with Jesus, out of which we now move towards people. And we're basically, we're not defensive. We're not proud. And Paul writes back, now, since you're God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Oh, my God. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love. I don't know. I read that. That's impossible. I mean, you can't will that to happen. Because you know what? You can't change yourself either. We open ourselves up to the love of God, and then he does the changing. But we have to open ourselves up. That's the key. And so the tendency to be protective and defensive and self-promoting and impatient, all that stuff is false self. Let me me give you a little example here of how it worked out for me just a week and a half ago. So uh, I was with my wife, and we were having our little meeting. In fact, we joke around with our kids sometimes. They say they're trying to talk to us and get to us. Don't talk to us right now. We're having our staff meeting. And they'll say, well, who's in the meeting? I say, well, Jerry, Mom, and me. Two of us. And so uh, I, had a, I had a little bit of an agenda. And so I brought Jerry the first agenda item. I'd written this, this statement, and I, uh, a couple of lines, and I wanted her feedback. I said, Jerry, I want you to read this and tell me what you think. Now, really, what I wanted her to say was, this is fantastic. <laughs> and I wanted her to say, maybe she could adjust a word like and, you know, use but instead of and, you know, something like that, or a better adjective here. But I didn't want a lot of input. Okay? <laughs> so Jerry gets it, and, and, and she just, she's very quiet. Like for a minute, two minutes. And I'm like, okay. And I'm getting very upset. Actually, I'm inside. I'm like starting to, okay, now my body's feeling it. Okay. Like, and so then she finally says, you know, have you thought about this and this? And this doesn't sound right over here. And what about this? And, and so she basically starts to, in a nice way, tear it apart. You know, or just, she's bringing value, but I really didn't want to hear it. And so I start getting very tense. And so I finally say, all right, listen, thanks. Let's move on to the next item. <laughs> and so Jerry, in classic form, says, well, um, can we take a moment here? And she says, Pete, like, what, what are you feeling right now? <laughs> like, what's going on inside of you? And she goes, isn't it ironic that you're writing a book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader? And right now, you're not very healthy. <laughs> and she said, then she asked a great question. She says, Pete, where do you think this is, whatever's going on inside of you, like, where's that coming from? Like, what in your background, like, what's this about? Now, this was a moment of truth. Now, I'm just quiet. My head is down. Because <laughs> I knew exactly where it came from. Uncle Pete, I'm thinking of my dad, and my mom. I, mean, I see it all in my family, you know, I'm a genogram. So do I go for the kill and start showing her some of her faults right now? Do I just pout and call it a meeting, call it a day? I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. The wrong person in the meeting, that's obvious, you know. 
but really, in, in just a few, like, you know, 30 seconds, I'm quiet. I'm really, all this is going through my head. Because the truth is, she's right. And I had to make a choice at that point. That I'm not as far along as I thought, and I've got some false self I've got to deal with in myself. We're all on a journey here. And as you know, it doesn't take a lot to fall back. And that I've, I've got some growth here, and, and it was a wonderful moment. But I'll tell you, the temptation to be triggered and to go after her was, was, was great. But these are the revelation moments of identity, of, of where it all is. And so when Paul says, you know, forgive as the Lord forgave you, you know, bear with whoever you I mean, oh my gosh, meet and accept people where they are. That's why it's like the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember Jesus was like, oh, Father, not my will, but your, your will. And he, he's sweating drops of blood. There are moments to, to, to be crucified to the old self, that, 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 that false self. It is like a crucifixion. And unless you can bask, in the, unless you're, you're grounded in the love of God for you, you won't make it. You just drop it. That's why Paul, he goes into this as God's chosen people. He stays there. And the first, again, Chapter 1, 2, and chapter 3 to verse 5, he doesn't ask them to do anything until he, he establishes the fact of you have got to get this into you as your life, that you're loved. Because all transformation flows out of surrendering to the love of God for you. It's a lifestyle of living in that love, not just one time. And it slowly transforms you, and then it melts away that false pretend self that we all have. Uh, but it's a very slow process, but it's incredibly powerful. Now, Revelations 3.20 is a very famous verse. It says, Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will have fellowship. And it's a, it's, a, it's a verse, it's used a lot in asking people to become Christians. But actually, the verse was written to Christians, a church like Colossians. And he, and he says, his point is, I'm knocking on your door all the time. That Jesus wants you to live from a different center than your family, from the culture, and from the big screen. He's inviting you to a radically different life. And that is living in his love for you, where you have nothing to prove to anybody, and that you're actually free. And then we're actually like the translator on the screen in the Ukraine. We're helping each other to live in the little screen. Because this is very difficult to be broken and vulnerable and non-defensive and forgiving and loving in a world that doesn't live like that. It's, it's another world. And so we are the church that's living, hopefully, the small screen. Now, there's two classes of people in the world. There's people in need who know they need God's mercy and grace. And then there's people in need who do not know they need God's mercy and grace. That's really the only distinction there is. Hopefully in this room, we know we need God's mercy and grace. We know it. So here's the challenge. I need the love of God to slowly in my life, over time, to melt that pretend self. And we'll call it the old self, to let it die. Because you can't do it yourself. It is the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ in God that enables you to actually come forth and have the courage to live your unique life, your sealed orders that are so radically different than the world around you. And so Paul writes, set your heart on things above, set your mind on things above. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is about God's after you to live in this kind of a close love relationship. 
And when we get away from his love, you know what? We're lost and we end up in a false self. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite the worship team to come on forward. And I want to ask you a question. Because I know your answer to this question will determine long-term your, your ability to live in your true self in Christ and to shed that false self and that pretend, pretension. And here's the question. How, um, how often do you spend time with God you know, developing your relationship with Jesus? Like, do you have a time on a daily basis of stopping to be with Jesus, to let him love you, which is actually, in a sense, the essence of the Christian life. Because, uh, and I had so many responses to the first two services, it was fascinating. So what I want to do is I want to close with us doing what we call at New Life uh, a daily office. Uh, some of you may have heard of devotions or, or quiet time. I don't know if it's possible, I really don't, to shed, I, I think Paul would say it's not, apart from a loving relationship with God, but that we basically build into our lives this thing of stopping to be with Jesus, to let him love us, or else we end up in that big screen in a nanosecond. So we wrote a couple of years ago, I guess five years ago now, wrote a book called The Daily Office. And the whole purpose of it was to help you and help our church, each person to develop uh, a personal relationship with Jesus, to a sustained love relationship where he can transform your life, to you're receiving the love of God. Uh, and so we're going to actually do an abbreviated one today from here. And I'm going to encourage you, if you don't have this, um, to pick it up on the way home, on the way out. It's like I mean, half price, $4, you know, and just get it and, and use it as a tool and try to set aside a time, maybe when you first get up in the morning, before you go to bed, or even both, to just stop and be with God, to get remember in the small screen and to receive his love. And so the basic format, uh, this is a great thing for connection. Many folks go to church, and they attend church, and, but they don't, they don't connect with God deeply for themselves. They kind of live off other people's spirituality. What we want is for you to be deeply connecting with the love of Jesus. So that, it says, disconnect technology, connect people. I love that. Nice phrase. So here's what we're going to do this daily office. And it's from actually day two. We're going to have, a, I'm going to, we're going to have about 30 seconds of silence. And then we're going to read a scripture together. There'll be a devotional. And then there'll be a question and a little bit more silence. And uh, so, listen, the whole, if you get nothing out of time with God, the whole goal is to receive his love for you, to remember his love. That's the message that is always coming out in all different forms. And so in this 30 seconds of silence, what I want you to do is, you know, you're going to kind of close your eyes and open up your hands towards heaven in a kind of a receiving posture. And we're going to be still before the Lord. And what helps me a lot is I remember the story of the prodigal son where the father races toward the son who'd actually been running away from him. And and, and, and the father embraces and hugs him and kisses him repeatedly. And, uh, you know, the the son has his head against the father's chest. I want to just invite you to just, and that's silence, just let God embrace you. Just receive his love for you that's not based on your performance just just loves you. And then we'll read the scripture together, okay? So just with your eyes closed and just before the Lord, let's be still before him.
Okay, let's read the, the scripture out loud on the screen together. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, and patience. Now, here's a little uh, devotional by Mother Teresa. We all must take the time to be silent and to contemplate, especially those who live in big cities like London and New York, where everything moves so fast. I always begin my prayer in silence, for it is in the silence of the heart that God speaks. God is the friend of silence. And we need to listen to God because it's not what we say, but what he says to us and through us that matters. Prayer feeds the soul. As blood is to the body, prayer is to the soul. And it brings you closer to God. And so the question is, how would you make room in your life for silence in order to listen to God? So with that, let's take you know, about 45 seconds or so, and let's be still before God. And so, Lord, amidst all the voices and all the noise around us, I pray you might give us the grace and the power to hear your voice and your word that says, I love you, I will never leave you, and do not be afraid. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand, everybody.